Welcome to the Wonder Years podcast, where we discuss principles and practices of nurturing a quiet growing time for children in the early years. In the midst of life's duties and delights, we can cultivate a richly humane life of truth, goodness, and beauty that feeds even the littlest of souls. I am your host, Amanda Foss, and together with my co-host, Brooke Johnson, we invite you to join us as we talk about how to craft homes that lead our children from wonder to worship to wisdom to work for the glory of God and the good of mankind. Let us make the education of the youths our own education and go further up and further in together. The books that should be set before children are books of play and ceremonial and pomp and war, the whole Gloria Mundi, the whole pageant of history full of blood and pride may safely be told them, everything but the secret of their own incomparable influence. Children need to be taught primarily the grandeur of the whole world. It is merely the whole world that needs to be taught the grandeur of children. G.K. Chesterton, Literature and Childhood. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of the Wonder Years podcast. I'm Brooke Johnson here with Amanda Foss, and today we have a lot to talk about. This is something we could talk about on and on, and truly, we have even said we do not want to make this a two-part, and so we are going to do our best, but we are going to be talking about stories today in the little years and what they are, what they do, why we read them, why should it matter? And this is something, Amanda, that has absolutely changed the culture of our home. And I'm excited to talk to you about this. You have been such an inspiration to me about stories and literature. And so let's just hear it. Um, Why is reading quality stories to our children such an important part of their formation? This is something you and I talk a lot of it about a lot about just as friends, um, especially the part about the formation. I have seen this play out in our home with my boys. And so I just want to hear from you. Why is this important in your home and why should we care about this? Yeah, I, I love that question. Um, I'm literally sitting here with a pile of books next to me because reading stories to our children if I had to summarize like the top three things necessary for the early years, along with reading the Bible and time out of doors, I would then say stories. Like this is the most foundational element of childhood. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And so I think for starters, just the thing that comes to mind is that really our understanding of why stories matter comes down to our view of what a person is, right? We believe people are made in the image of God. Mm. Christ, the Logos, was the image of God who became incarnate. We saw him. People heard him, right? His word was spoken. And so as image bearers of God, understanding that people are reflecting Christ, recognizing that Christ is the Logos, we see ourselves as people of the word, people of words. Mm. Um, Language is essential for being a human communication, right? Discussing and having conversations with one another, uh, prayer, talking with God. Words are essential to all of that. And so uh, at the same time, I think many times, whether it's just in the homeschool world at large or maybe in classical ed, sometimes you can hear people 
talk about reading stories to our kids as if it's only about the words, like it's only about vocabulary and right. making sure that your kids have a really good one. And so, oh, well, if you read widely, like that's going to help them have a good vocabulary and good vocabularies will help them write well. And if they write well, they'll get into a good college, <laughs> you know, and it's kind of like this maybe more pragmatic approach. Mm -hmm. But I think the other part of this that is so important is to remember not only do we have the logos side of things, the logocentricism of stories, but then we have the mythos, which is this idea of there's a story being told to explain reality, right? The word myth is in there. And we're going to get into what myth is a little more in depth later. But suffice it to say that for all of human history, people have been asking questions like, how did we get here? Hmm. What is the problem? What is the solution? Why are we here? What is a good and noble action? Like, how do you live in this world? How do you be here? What is worthy of our esteem? And those questions have been being answered for thousands of years in myth. Hmm. And so this really comes again, though, to understanding that as people, we are storied beings. Hmm. God is telling the great story, right? Capital S, the story of creation, fall, and redemption of mankind. And so in that huge story that God is telling all the time, he then in a micro level is telling that on an, for every individual. And then you have these stories, these books, whether it's Bible, fairy tale, folk tales, legends, myths, poetry, whatever it is, this pattern is in all of those places. Hmm. This, this mythic story that is being told as people wrestle with those questions and seek to answer them which sounds really like high above mm. small children, right? This is a podcast about the earlier. So on the one hand, you might hear all that and be like, well, why does that matter for my four-year-old? Mm -hmm. um, but the reason it matters is because your four-year-old is still a human being. Yeah. And so all of this still applies when it comes to them being made in the image of God, mm -hmm. being knit and made and formed by words, and being a storied person who in their very substance is going to respond to story as they're hearing it, as they are being read to, you know, as a, as a small child, um, just sitting on their mom's lap, right? This is when it begins that deeper engagement with reality. Hmm. And so with that side of it, then you have imagination. You know, we all have an imagination. I think there's a lot of messy categories mm. that people have. Like you have some people who hear imagination and they think it's all bad. Like, yeah. oh, like fantasy, imagination, all bad. Or people who like think if you just say the word imagination, it's inherently good. <laughs> like, mm. oh, it's so physical and lovely. And that's childhood is just using their imagination. And probably, you know, the golden mean as Aristotle would say, the middle way is, is more close to the truth in the sense that uh, the imagination is this powerful tool that can be used for great good or for mm -hmm. great evil. Yeah. Um, and so that is something that we have to realize that our children's imaginations will be formed, mm -hmm. but what are they being formed by? Right. And that is, comes, down, comes down to why we use the stories. I'm sorry, not use the stories, but read the stories that we read is we are seeking to form their imagination in a certain direction. And from the classical perspective, more specifically, we're seeking to form them towards goodness, truth and beauty or virtue and excellence. Right. And so I would add to that then just finally, then that the, the mother of all virtues is humility and stories have this unique capacity to humble us as people, even for a child to realize that the world is not s as small as their four walls. Mm -hmm. Right. Like 
they have a world that they know right from you know their earliest days and it, it starts with just mom and dad and the family right but then maybe they go out and they start to realize oh like there's other people like at the grocery store okay like i can walk out my door and see trees and go to the park or all these things and their world is slowly expanding but stories suddenly take even that and blow their world as big as the universe. <laughs> like right. now, not only is their world as big as, oh, one person relating to one person, but it could be relating to in time, right? One person reading the story of someone 200 years ago right. or 2000 years ago. And so through all of that, that process is as we encounter the bigness of the world, the bigness of history we get a sense of how small we are, which is a good, but the, in the, in the right way, right. In a way right. that is humbling us and helping us see the bigness of God and what he's doing in the world and how small we are. Um, and yet through that, I think that's a very, the, the most important and best kind of formation for our child is to be aware of that. There's a quote in ourselves that, uh, by Charlotte Mason that I really love. She says, it is a great thing to be accustomed to good society and when intellect walks abroad in this fair kingdom, he becomes intimate with the best of all ages and countries. Poets and novelists paint pictures for him, while imagination clears his eyes so that he is able to see those pictures. They fill the world, too, with deeply interesting and delightful people who live out their lives before his eyes. C.S. Lewis has another quote where he talks about, I think we've actually quoted it on the podcast before, right? But he, he talks about that people who don't read inhib inhabit a very small world. Right. And so it's through reading, whether it's from us reading to our children or then as they grow old enough to read for themselves, that that world is expanded and grown. Um, another reason, the last reason I'll bring up, too, is emulation of virtue. That's actually from Cicero. He said, all literature, all philosophy, all history abounds with incentives to noble action. Incentives that would be buried in black darkness were the light of the written word not flashed upon them. He says that in his pro Archie Poeta. Just that idea that there are, there are truths that are in a sense hidden. You know, I think of the proverb that talks about it's the glory of God to hide a thing and the glory of kings to search it out. Yes, essentially. The idea is there. Yes. That's the basic idea, right? <laughs> so that idea that like God has hidden these golden ideas throughout all these stories, throughout his world, and it is ours for the finding. Like we are on this great search to find these incentives to noble action, to have a vision of what does sacrifice look like? What is worth dying for? What yeah. is worth living for? What does it mean to stand for righteousness and to hate evil? Right. You know, these are things that even starting with the most basic of fairy tales or ace of fables or whatever it might be, you're already forming that part of a child's moral imagination for them to have a perception of, oh, this is what's good and I want to be good, right? I want to be the good guy and this is what's bad, right? I, yeah. I have a daughter who always is, you know, oh, like that's that's the evil witch from Snow White and she'll always say, but the evil witch doesn't win. The good yeah. guys always win. Mm. And that's a conversation we're having all the time because oh. kids are aware that there's bad in the world, right? They're going to mm. see it and I feel that sense even in themselves, right? We feel that pull of to do what is right and yet at times that pull to do what is wrong and so to give children a vision for you have a choice, you can choose to do the good thing right now, or you could choose to give into your witchy side, know what character you're being, right? Helping your child to know what character in any given moment that they're being. Well, and that's actually a really profound tool. I think much more profound than just like 
giving a mini sermon, right? To be like, okay, like, are you being like Lucy or Mm -hmm. are you like Edmund, right? Like when those moments to give them a contrast and suddenly it's like a light bulb will come on in their eyes and it's like, oh, like, whereas if you just said like, you know, are you being loyal and faithful to your siblings right now? They're going to be like, okay, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) They kind of glaze over. The eyes will glaze over, but a story will capture their hearts. I can't remember um, if she was the one who said it or if she was quoting someone else, but I will quote her. But Autumn Kern in that same very idea has said before that nobody likes a rule, but everyone loves a story. And Mm. using that very example of, I have had one of my sons say to me that I have sounded like the white witch from the line, the witch in the wardrobe, which immediately I knew exactly what that sounded like because I know what she sounds like in the story. And it was just that example of that they are able to relate in a deeper way, in a truer way, when there is a story and a narrative to it, because we embody the things that we are thinking about and what's in our minds, right? We become the things that we are beholding. And when we are beholding truth, goodness, and beauty in narrative form, I don't know about your house, Amanda, I would imagine it's true, but in our home, my boys embody the story. If we are reading the Chronicles of Narnia, they live in Narnia. If we are in the Star Wars era, they are living out every galactic battle there is. And it is just an amazing thing to see because for me, my childhood was not filled with this richness of story. And so I um, I was just telling this to you that I have an adult obsession with so many of these stories, reading them as an adult as at 32, but to watch from the earliest days what happens to a child and to an imagination when they are given it from the beginning has been such a redemptive thing in my own parenting um, and probably my own relationship with the Lord honestly, in so many ways. So everything that you just said, I have actually seen be true in our home over these last, you know, several years. Well, what you just said there makes me think of that's one of the things that I know I've had times where we've talked um, on previous episodes about masterly inactivity. Yes. But I think something to be in tune to as a mom in a masterly inactivity moment is to what your children are playing Right. In their imaginative play. Yeah. Because I totally have experienced what you're talking about, right? That the books I'm reading, the stories I'm reading, and I hear it coming out in their play. Um, There have been other seasons where I noticed that it was something like Sonic the Hedgehog that was forming their imagination. And that was the go-to. And I was like, oh, no, (laughs) we are not going to be doing that. So but it wasn't that I just like came down like a ton of bricks. It was just something that I noted. Right. And then like had a conversation with my husband, like, hey, let's lessen, mm. you know, this thing over here. And I'm going to be really intentional to make sure we are prioritizing reading books or stories, you know, especially in seasons of being postpartum or right. having a small baby. It, it was really easy for me to just not be getting as much time to be reading aloud to my kids. Mm. And so I think, but it was still nonetheless a reminder that a story is going to be living itself out in my children's minds. Right. Like, right. It's not a matter of which, but you know, if, if, but which. Right. And so I think that then 
as more, you know, as more children came, realizing it still had to be a priority, even in that sort of season, though it may look really different. It might look like, you know, while I'm breastfeeding or something like mm-hmm. that, it, which is less fun for the mom, to be clear. Right. Like, I would rather sit and like sip some iced coffee, you know, with my feet up while I'm nursing, but that's not realistic or best in this season. Right. And so, right. Instead of being like grumbly about that, being like, no, I'm going to make the most of this. This is a time where I have to sit here for 20 to 30 minutes. So now I'm going to read a storybook, you know, maybe every time or every other time I'm doing that just so that I can make sure I'm getting those times. Um, Because I want to not only be in tune to what my children's imaginations are being formed by, but I don't want to leave them without the best. Right. Right. I want them to have the best. I want them to be being the good guys fighting the bad. I want them to love adventure and to be curious about God's world and interested in all of those things. And so, um, yeah, everything you said definitely resonates. And yet it also humbles me to realize that it's it's not always been perfect. (laughs) You know, I I have had times where I didn't read as much as I wish I had. Um, And yet it blows me away how quickly it can recover. Like. Okay. Two weeks, you know, I'm just going to be really consistent for two weeks. And what do you know? They're, you know, they're back to right on track with loving the right things. But it just, it's just a very important area that I think as a mom requires great intentionality and constant reevaluation if you notice it slipping. Yeah. And so this is something that um, I hadn't thought to ask you and you don't, you know, just to have your answer or to hear it. But how would you encourage the mom maybe that, you know, is hearing all of this, loves the ideas, yes to everything you said, but she herself struggles to love to read or to even like to read? What would be some things, um, because I have often come in contact with, um, I did not spend really any of my formative years reading. It just was not anything encouraged. I never saw it done. I really wasn't read to very much. And so it was in my adulthood, um, in college. And truly for me, when, when I see a pivot, like the, the change is when I became a Christian, that desires really did change. So I'm not saying that, you know, if you're a Christian and you don't like to read, you're not a Christian, do not misunderstand me. But for me individually, I had not grown up with story or I had not grown up with a love of reading. I, you know, spark notes every book in high school. And I'm not proud of that, but that's just the reality. And so, yeah, but that is something now as an adult that when I meet moms, if they themselves don't like to read and spend that time, I'm trying to encourage them with some things to do. Do you have any just, again, this was not in our notes. So it's very just like, as you were talking, I was like, I have, I have some women in mind who have come to me. I want to read more, but I don't like it. How can I grow that? Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is what I do with anything in my life that I know I should like it and I don't like it enough. Yeah. um, Is I try to find something that will give me an inspiring idea to hold on to and, you know, motivate me. So um, I think like if if the issue is books and you don't you haven't um, developed yet a love of reading. I mean, the first thing I'll say is I think for many people the more common scenario is that they haven't gotten to read good stories. Right. So that's why they don't love right. books, right? They think, oh, I don't love to read. But yeah, like if you were to ask them, oh, well, what what were you trying to read? Um, it might have been maybe just like a more modern novel or something. Whereas if you can dip your toe into 
fairy tales and legends and stories that have stood the test of time, right? That's the gift of the great tradition is you're, you're being handed books that have been being handed down for hundreds of years, if not a thousand years or more. Yeah. And so um, at the same time, some of those books, if you are someone who hasn't read, you're not going to just like go off into the deep end and read the Iliad. Like that would not be recommended for anyone. Right. So you need to. But this is where as a homeschool mom in the early years, I think this is really the ideal situation because. Yes. Yes. So John Senior, who was the president of the humanities program at the University of Kansas, and he had what he called the 1000 good books. And the 1,000 good books were basically the books you need to read so that you can have the foundation to go then read the great books. And so I think that for a mom is just a great place to start because it gives you like just more easy reads. And he has it even uh, broken down by age. So like here's, you know, before they're seven and then here's right. from eight to 12. And, here. and so just starting there with your children um, you know, I think we're going to get we're going to talk about fairy tales, yeah. but um, listening to things like the Literary Life podcast with Angelina Stanford absolutely woke up, woke me up to fairy tales. <laughs> it suddenly took this thing that like I just didn't get like I didn't get it. I would read Grimm's fairy tales sometimes and be like, "What? why is this a good thing? Like, these are yeah. really weird. People's toes are getting chopped off like. This is like what I was confused by. It. And then I listened to the literary like podcast episodes Angelina did on it and some of her conferences. And suddenly it was like, there's literally no bigger fan of fairy tales than me. Mm. So, you know what? So I think so often our struggle to love something is either a lack of knowledge or a lack of encountering truly good stories in the first place. And so if you can remedy those two issues of find quality content to listen to that is going to help you understand it, something like the literary life podcast. Or, and then two, make sure you're reading, not just, you know, if you're like, oh, like, I'm just hate reading. And, but then it's like, oh, but you're just like trying to read Brown Bear, Brown Bear 50 times a day. Like <laughs> there's a place for Brown Bear, Brown Bear, not hating on it. My kids, for some reason, always love that board book. I don't, like, I don't understand why, but at the same time, of course, that's going to be like soul deadening as a mother if you're sitting there reading that book 50 times and are not moving on to books that actually have interesting themes and stories. At the same time, even as I say that, with the right lens, and this is why inspiring ideas are so important, as you are developing a lens to understand stories, to understand metaphor, um, Emily Thomas, who is a lady in the common house, she just started a Substack that is on, I'll put it in the show notes. I'm not remembering the name right now. It's something like the stained glass window. I think it might be what it's called. But she literally wrote a Substack on the little blue truck, which if you're familiar with it, I would never have thought there was a redemptive theme in the little blue truck. And yet she took this story and just made it a beautiful image of the gospel. Like, and so I love things like that. Like I'm following her Substack, right? Because someone like that who can give me a vision to see God's stories, to see the, see like truth, goodness, and beauty in even simple stories is powerful. Yeah. And I think in many ways, it's like these glasses you put on and when you see it, then you get excited because suddenly like I like after I read her post, I'm like, I want to go read the little blue truck. <laughs> like, where's my two-year-old? Yeah. Because you're inspired. Right. And because suddenly it's not just the little blue truck anymore. Suddenly it's Christ bearing wow. our dirt and getting in the mud with us. And like as a mother, like I think contemplation is such a huge part of motherhood yes. in terms of 
if you just approach it as prayer, as an opportunity to ponder deeper realities so far beyond what your children can understand. All these things that we're going to talk about reading with your kids, your kids, it's not like in the moment as you're reading to your six-year-old that she's going to know all the depth of the riches of the gospel because you just read her Sleeping Beauty. Yeah. Like she's just going to know she likes Sleeping Beauty. And she's yeah. probably going to know that she liked the movie because she wore a pretty dress and had a pretty voice. And But over time, yeah, she's going to come to realize, oh, no, this is about Christ who mm-hmm. rescues his church. Mm-hmm. Right? And so that image is a powerful image. That was mm-hmm. one that my daughter, I think she was about six when she figured that one out on her own. Like I didn't tell her Sleeping Beauty is a story of the gospel. Yeah. I just told her, I read her Sleeping Beauty. And then later on, actually, I think it came up was we somehow we had gotten on the topic of Satan and the dragon in scripture. And so once she had that piece of the puzzle that like, ooh, dragon means Satan, suddenly it was like blew her world open. And she was like, wait, but there's this story that has the dragon and there's that story that has the dragon. And, and she was connecting all the pieces yeah. of what those stories meant. And yeah. so again, I just think that happens as a mom. Like once you know what to be looking for in stories, it's like this just divine mystery, like hide and seek, where you're just playing this game with God in a sense where you're getting to find these things and just be like blown away by the glory of God. And like the wonder of this world that he's made where there's just constantly things that point to him and point to these deeper patterns that are the patterns of reality in the story that he's telling. Um, So yeah, that's my long-winded answer. that's, That's really good. And I would just say, yes, we love Emily. Yes, join the common house, all the things. And when you mentioned, I think it's just a grace of God, honestly, that for so many of us who maybe have a story similar to mine that maybe didn't grow up loving to read or having these ideas, you know, available to them in, you know, just a ready form. And yet we get to begin with our children. So we get to begin with Mother Goose Aesop's fables in the fairy tales and what I have witnessed as just I'm reading them to my children they are just exactly what you described they are inspiring me they are a delight to read they are fun to read some rhyme and so that even has built in me like a muscle that was just really weak and just Um, you know, I was really malnourished. And so I think of just God's grace when he gives us children that so much of it, what I have seen is it has just been a redemption of so much of my own childhood. Um, As I have not been a perfect parent or perfect mom, but have just entered in reading these stories and it has just been a delight. And so we would just, um, yeah, we would just recommend to grab some old fairy tales and myths. And we're going to talk about that in a second. But before we get to that piece, we just want to throw out that if you are in the classical Charlotte Mason space, you have heard this word, twaddle. What is it? Why does it matter? What happens when a twaddly book sneaks in? And so we just want to give a basic definition that we think is just helpful because There's a lot of ways that it's described, but if you just think twaddle is low quality writing that talks down to children. Um, Yeah, I think that that just kind of sums it up. And you probably know, even in hearing that definition, what books might be on your shelf right this second that maybe are a bit more twaddly, that have low quality writing 
that talk down to your children in a babyish, simple, little, I almost just think of, you know, like the baby talk where um, Mason in her book will talk about that. <laughs> we are to speak like this, like an adult, like normal, like no baby talk to them. And Amanda, you actually brought this up. I had not made this connection before we started recording, but that Mason, when she is writing about twaddle, while it does reference books, she is often referring to the way that we speak to our children. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that I, I don't know why I had not noticed that before right. until looking up her, her things about that. But, um, you know, I think it just comes down to words shape us mm. and we want even our communications with our children. Well, on the one hand, I think why we communicate to children in baby voices or things like that sometimes it's because we're trying to show them love, right? Like we're trying to yeah. be like uh, sweet with them. And, uh, you know, we talking, my yeah. family is full of people who talk in goofy voices. So please do not right. mistake. Right, right. And like we're all high and mighty and we speak very <laughs> professional all the time. At the same time, we do it as a joke when we're doing it. And it's a shared camaraderie of laughter. Like, isn't this silly because we're being funny? Not that this is actually what I think about you. Yeah. And I think that's the difference is twaddly talk or twaddly books are at the end of the day, someone who fundamentally has a low view of children as persons, right? They yes. don't view them as capable of very much. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, what I, one thing that came to my mind as you were talking is that if a, as a mom, if you're ever wondering which books are the twaddle, if you feel like you don't really know, it's probably the books you hate reading. Yeah. Like the books that are just like an agony to have to read over and over again to your child probably are twaddly books. That's why you don't like them because you as a person, something inside you is going, no, not again, as a more mature person, I should say. And so while children love repetition and if mm -hmm. given only that quality of book, they'll be fine. They'll, they'll stay there. They'll stay at that level. It's like giving them a piece of candy over and over again. Um, but if you then help them, you give them better books over time, they're going to develop a taste and a love of those better books. And I think this goes for the words in the books just as much as it goes for things like the pictures in the books, right? A lot of picture books, a lot of modern picture books, I should say, have really somewhat hideous illustrations. And so I think that's also been a priority in our home is, in a sense, not having twaddly images either, right? Because right. I don't want the images that I'm giving my children in their books to suggest that I have a low view of them, that they don't deserve quality, that they don't understand beauty, or that, they, that their soul doesn't need beauty because it absolutely does. Okay, so I want to read this quote from John Sr., who I mentioned earlier, when he was talking about his 1,000 good books, and this is what he said. He said, the seeds of the great books are good, but the cultural soil has been depleted. The seminal ideas of Plato, Aristotle, St. Augustine, St. Thomas only properly grow in an imaginative ground saturated with fables, fairy tales, stories, rhymes, adventures, which have developed in the thousand books of Grimm, Anderson, Stevenson, Dickens, Scott, Dumas, and the rest. Western tradition, taking all that was best of the Greco-Roman world into herself, has given us the thousand good books as preparation for the great ones and for all the studies in the arts and sciences without which such studies are inhumane. So I love that image that he's giving us that the good books, and we're going to talk about categories coming up right now, but these good books are the soil for the seeds of the great books to grow in. So really, if we like, if we want an image for what our goal is with reading stories to our children in the early years, mm -hmm. it is the tending of that soil. 
We are trying to fill their soil with this rich living organisms, these living stories that will then lay a foundation for later when they encounter, like you said, Plato or Aristotle or St. Augustine, right? That as they encounter those great works, they will have been prepared uh, and able to understand them. So this is this breakdown is basic is a common one you're going to hear in classical education a lot. The people will say, "Oh, your children need Bible, poetry, fairy tales, myths, fables, and legends." So we're going to talk about each one of those because I think they each deserve our attention. They each deserve some time to talk about how do we do this, why we do that, etc. So we're just going to take it one at a time. So Bible, the Bible, God's Word, the Holy Scriptures. Why, Brooke, do we? give our children the Bible first and foremost? Well, I think you mentioned this a little bit, but I would just say to start in my mind, God said through Moses that man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. He went on to say that this word, this book is no empty word for you, but is your very life. I think of John and his gospel, right? That the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we see in that art, in that narrative, big epic story, the meta narrative, capital S that you talked about, that we see creation, fall, redemption. We see God's plan. And we have said before on this podcast in another episode that God wrote two books, right? The Holy Scriptures and then creation. And I love thinking about that, but when I think of the Bible with children, just outright, we just open it up and we read it to them. And this isn't a storybook Bible, although those have their place, but I would argue that the word that is living and active is able to meet the smallest child and also the oldest saint. And it is written in a way inspired by the Holy Spirit, that it is able to do a work in the hearts of your, you know, infant all the way up. And I think oftentimes we think, especially when it comes to Bible, that this is way over their head. It's, you know, they need all the little Bibles first, and then they'll kind of mature up into that. But I don't know about your experience, Amanda, but I have found that my son's can take the Bible as it is written, as it is, opened up, read straight from it. And one of the things that I think that has just been so formative for them is that when we are reading over and over again, they are starting to see that narrative form. They're starting to see as we read from Old Testament, poetry, history, literature, you know, all the literary forms that we see in the Bible. Because I think one of the things that we forget often is that while the Bible is certainly, do not misunderstand me, is certainly more than a book, it is at least that. Meaning that it was written with literary genre and forms because God created us to be, as you said, story formed. We are formed by story. He made us to take in words. And when I think that God could have revealed himself in any way, any way, but he chose the Logos, a word written down, passed down, then that is something I just want to be very intentional with and serious about giving to my kids. 
at the very earliest age. And so for me, it's not been something I've had to really work out or like work through. We have just from their earliest days have just read God's word to them. Um, all throughout the day, we've listened to it on audio. Um, and that's not to say that we don't have story Bibles because we do, but I would just really push for moms um, in the early years, especially to really read from God's word because they start, we think less of them than God thinks of them. And I would just say that, that we think because it's hard for us to understand and how are we going to explain, you know, all of Solomon's wives or all of this that just happened with David and about this Old Testament thing. And so we'll just skip it, certainly use wisdom, but at the same time, um, God put it in there and it is the full account of human reality. And so I just think that we do them a disservice when we withhold it from them because we think they can't handle it. Yeah, that's so true. I think that it's just like we said earlier, like this comes down to your view of, of a person. Right. And believing that they are truly fit for God's best. And yeah. truly the scriptures are God's best, right? Yes. The best stories ever told are in scripture. And in fact, most, if not all great stories are reflecting some piece at a minimum of the yeah. biblical narrative. Right. And so- I remember even hearing, I think it was on Stories or Soul Food, where the host made the point that uh, most Western films are basically just Samson. And I was like, mind blown. Like, like, oh my gosh, it's true. But yeah. realizing that this is really true in the sense that the scriptural stories, even in the Old Testament, really are the building blocks of so many stories. Yeah. Or there's themes in them that are very fascinating to trace just as like something true about the world, the way God made it. Right. And then you can trace it through, say, Greek and Roman mythology, for example. Right. Like there is so many just pegs that the scriptures give you to understand uh, the rest of scripture. Yeah. You know, the other thing you thought, uh, what you were saying made me think of is that Leland Riken has a book called Words of Delight, a literary mm. introduction to the Bible. And it is so good. Like if you, I, I really love the Bible. So I really wasn't expecting to fall more in love with the Bible, honestly, when I read it a couple of years ago, because I was like, yeah, kind of already a big fan. But honestly, like he just brought scripture to life in a way that was so rich mm. and it just gave me new eyes to see scripture as this great story yeah. and so if you need an inspiring idea yeah. to motivate it about reading the bible whether for yourself or for your children i would really encourage that book just to give you that lens to see it from a literature perspective can be again not in any way minimizing that it is no. you know holy scriptures that it is inerrant all of that but nonetheless it is still a t it is a book of literature um, God wrote it as a story. I mean, I even think of like how much of scripture is narrative. I mean, you know, the grand majority, it's narrative, it's poetry, you know, all of these things. And so um, there's a lot to be gained there by understanding that um, with kids. But anything else you have to say about that before we move on? No, that was that was it. And that was really good. I have read his book on, I think, on reading. I think Leland Riken has has a book on reading or I can't remember the title, but it was also fantastic. So I will definitely look up what you said, because I think that if anything, um, just like you said, if we need an inspiring idea to be in God's word more to see it so often, Amanda, I have found that it's just a, like a tool, right? So if you can read a book to help you see that, 
then it's just what you said, the inspiring idea. And so often we have the desire, but we're just feeling really lost in it. And so having that or reading that and you saying it gave you eyes to see, it will just inspire you to do it for you. And then you will just be more encouraged to do it with your children. And there's just, there's no greater book, honestly, to read from. Um, I think it was um, Spurgeon who said, you know, give me all the books, but, you know, if I can spend all the time in all the books, it would be the Bible, right? Like spend all this time in all of these other books, which are good, but if I could pick one, it would be God's word. And so... I just think that that's really encouraging to think about and and how when you have that story in your mind, we're going to talk about poetry next, but when we move into these other forms of literature, you just see the science of relations, which is what Mason's whole thing is. So tell us about poetry. Yeah, so in a very real sense, we have to remember that humanity's first recorded words were poetry, Mm. right? Adam says, right, about Eve, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This is a poem, a love poem to his bride as he sees her. And so I think then when you think about the beginning of the classical tradition, what are the first stories that we talk about, right? We talk about the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, right? These are super old stories that are written in a poetic form. And so in that sense, you're talking about this poetic story, more like mythic types of poetry. But I think at the same, in, in addition to that, poetry is very unique because it orients our emotions, right? Like poetry is written in a way to make you feel something, hmm. to feel love, to feel anger, to feel joy, to feel the preciousness of a moment to feel the passing of time. Poetry does that with words. It takes language and evokes a sensation in you, or at least that's the goal. And so with children, there's this really powerful opportunity to read them poetry and orient them and order them from their earliest days towards a love of the good. I think there's definitely just language formation in there as far as, you know, reading them Mother Goose, like you said, reading them A Child's Garden of Verses uh, by Robert Louis Stevenson, whatever it might be, poetry is giving your child a rich vocabulary, but it's also orienting them to love the good, to love a a word fitly spoken, right? Mm -hmm. Um, To delight in language. I mean, I think that's something that's been really sweet to me to see in my eight-year-old that she's always enjoyed me reading poetry. Like that's not, but we started doing it when she was so little, probably two years old is when I started reading her poetry. But this year I saw her just start to really delight in the words. Like she'd want me to read a line again, mm-hmm. or she would, if we were listening to it on audio, she'd be like, Ooh, let's, let's listen to that one again. Like she, like she wanted to kind of contemplate it more. Of course she wasn't calling it contemplation, but that's what was happening. Yeah. Right. She was wanting to just to, to rest upon an image or think more about an idea. Mm. And I think that's the power of poetry that mm-hmm. it draws you in. And suddenly you're like, Ooh, I need to read that again. Right. Often because it's difficult to understand that, you know, it's not always easy to understand on the first reading. It does evoke a contemplative mode because you're going to, you want to just keep reading it again and again. Um, I think sometimes it's more powerful to sit and read the same poem three times to your child than to just read through 10 poems, right? We do both. So it's not that one or the other is necessarily better, but I just think there's a place for both. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, the other thing about poetry is it's words engaging the whole person, right? It's meant to be heard, right? Poetry is not meant to be read silently in your head. Poetry is meant to be spoken. Right. Um, so it's meant to be gestured at, right? If a person who's presenting a poem is going to make gestures with their hands, they're going to have facial expressions, their body is participating in a, in the story that they're trying to communicate. Um in a sense, you could say it's to be experienced, like a poem is to be experienced and to have those sensations to be felt. Mm. So Dana Goya has a article called Poetry as Enchantment that is so good. I'll link it in our show notes. But if you are if you are someone like many people who are like, why poetry? Why does this matter? Is this a like, yes, I always hear people saying I should read poetry, but like, does it really matter? Um, I would encourage you to go read that article. It is pretty lengthy. It's probably like a 20 minute read, but he just gives some very inspiring ideas. Hmm. And I'll share I'll share some of them with you right now. He says poetry is the oldest form of literature. Indeed, it is the primal form of all literature. Poetry even predates history because it not only existed, but flourished before the invention of writing. Mm. As an oral art, it did not require the alphabet or any other form of visual inscription to, de to develop and perfect a vast variety of meters, forms, and genres. Before writing, poetry, or perhaps one should say, stood, wait. Before writing, poetry, or perhaps one should say, stood at the center of culture as the most powerful way of remembering preserving and transmitting the identity of a tribe, a culture, or a nation. He quotes Robert Frost as saying, poetry is a way of remembering what it would impoverish us to forget. And all of these are really big ideas. So again, we come back to why for little people? Because they're people. Wow. Because they, they deserve to hear these beautiful words, to hear meter and rhythm and speech being spoken in a way that's beautiful and lovely to the ears and to have sensations awoken and evoked in their own mind and heart and emotions, whether it's a love of nature or with Robert Louis Stevenson, he has a lot of different ones about different like relational dynamics, maybe one about an aunt or one about being with a mother or mm. the, the feeling of the, the sun going down and it's time for bed. Right. These are story type moments or situations or relationships that have emotions that go with it. And so in a sense, you're getting your giving your child the opportunity to taste and participate in those moments, in those relationships in a way that might cause reflection um, in a deeper way later. He said, the underlying musical nature of poetry is a primary reason why, as T.S. Eliot observed about Dante, Genuine poetry can communicate before it is understood. Uh, that is such a powerful concept to realize that even uh, for your child, before they can, quote unquote, understand the poems, it is still communicating to them. Right. And that's something I, I didn't I don't think I got to say earlier, but it had come into my mind while you were talking is that children don't understand anything when they're born. <laughs> so anyone who says, oh, we shouldn't read the Bible or we shouldn't read poetry because it's over a child's head. They're forgetting that literally everything is over a child's head until they hear it and, under and come to know it, at which point then it becomes a part of their head, right? Like, right. that's the whole world, which is why it, it might be, like, problematic for you as a parent. Like, you might mm -hmm. feel, like, this wrestling as you're reading a Bible passage or reading a book or reading a poem that you mm -hmm. know, oh, my kid doesn't understand all of this. It's not bothering your child at all. Right. Like, they don't care that they don't understand it because they're not sitting there reflecting, I just don't understand this. Now, if sometimes... 
maybe, especially I think as they get to that six, seven, eight years old, they start to be a little more aware of what they don't know. And so right. they might interrupt you more to be like, wait, what does that mean? Wait, what does that mean? And that's, but that's just a natural developmental step. And as then you right. answer their question and you help them to understand, you know, if that happens to me while I'm reading a poem, I will explain the words that they ask about as we're going through, but then I'll go back to the top and say, okay, now let's read it one more time through now that you know what those words mean. Mm -hmm. And so allowing them to have that time to not rush it. I mean, that's the beauty of poetry is there's no hurry. You're not supposed mm -hmm. to rush through poetry. You're supposed to enjoy poetry. And so like many things, I think many adults hear about poetry and they're like, this is not something I love. Why do, is it really matter? Why do I have to do it? But I would encourage everyone to consider that if even if you don't love poetry, you don't want to repeat the same mistake with your child. Mm -hmm. If they if you're reading poetry to them from an early age, they're going to love poetry. Right. Exposure breeds taste, as we've talked about so many times. And my children have no idea that it's not normal to love poetry. <laughs> and we're not like, honestly, like if you met us in person, anyone who knows us in real life, we are not some like sophisticated, fancy family. We are very normal, California, beachy people. <laughs> like not, there's nothing fancy about us. And yet they love poetry. They just think it's great because just that was one of the, you know, for all the things that I wish I have done more, reading poetry is not one of them. I was able to include that from early on just because it was so simple. I literally just would get a poetry book and stick a bookmark in it and just read a couple pages and then yeah. be done for the day. Mm -hmm. And so I just love that my eight-year-old, my six-year-old, my four-year-old, even my two-year-old, actually, she she was getting up standing on a chair today doing our poetry recitation with us. And she, she I'm like blown away at two years old. She already yeah. has so many words memorized. Um, so all together, they're all delighting in poetry. Right. And yet, just because they don't know that it's not an option not to. <laughs> yeah. Well, it reminds me of um, just like what you said, my five-year-old the other day, just randomly walking around, he was walking past me and I heard him say, Ulysses, Ulysses the Sacker of Cities, just out of nowhere. And that is one of our, we're, we're reading Tales of Troy and Greece right now for my oldest. And my five-year-old is able to sit in, you know, he often is sitting in, he's listening, but what he's taking in, I'm not sure because, you know, we don't do narration with him just yet, but it's just so interesting. I told my husband about that this morning that you just have no idea what is happening and just what you said, you know, if it is true that exposure breeds taste, then we just want to expose them to the best as early as we can and as often as we can. Because one of the quotes that I love, and I have, I just read it this week, um, is by Stratford Caldecott that says, to be enchanted by story is to be granted a deeper insight into reality. And so him thinking at five years old about all the shenanigans of Ulysses and all of that whole storyline, what pieces he's taking in, it is giving him a deeper picture of reality and yeah. good versus evil and all of that, that at this point in his life, he's not able to communicate back to me. But just like you said, talking about the John Sr. quote about planting seeds, to me, I, I see that image of um, the parable of the sower, right? Cultivating the soul to be ready to receive the truth. And yeah. where you and I might wrestle with, you know, how is this true or what is the meaning or where is the theme or what is the plot? Children don't yet think in those terms. I mean, they're going to get there as they mature, but 
for a lot of our children who are immature at this stage when we're introducing these ideas, they just see reality as reality. They can hear a story and know that doesn't sound good, right? You mentioned about um, your daughter realizing the dragon and then she just had the science of relation of, I know dragons in every story now. And it's that idea, how many times I have heard parents say to me, because the first books I try to give them are the Chronicles of Arnia, but they will all let me know the second their child hits them. And it might hit them like books later or weeks after they finish, but then they just like wake up and they say, Aslan, Aslan is Jesus. And it's not anything that has said, you know, it's not written in the book like that. And so you just don't ever know. And I think oftentimes we feel this weirdness in us of, do I have to tell them? Do I have to make it clear? Do I have to? And oftentimes what's happening is we are muddying the waters that are just very clear and on the surface. Like you said, like we don't give explanation if our children are not asking, but oftentimes it's that twaddle that Mason talked about that we just filled them with needless information that they weren't really ready to receive. And so if we can do our part, as she says, to masterly inactivity, to keep our mouths shut, I have a post-it note on my lessons, you know, that says that keep your mouth shut like do not talk more than is necessary because he's going to let me know what he needs to know he's going to let me know he's going to ask those questions when he's ready without me almost like priming him for okay now let me lay out you're going to hear this and it's going to be bad and we're not bad so you're going to hear a story about this boy taking this from his brother you don't ever take things from your brother and we just are so overwhelming to the child when he could have listened to the story and said yeah, we don't take, you know, and it's just like, we just, I think that's the part that moms early on, we just feel so nervous about, right? That, well, maybe I'm going to read something in the story and my kid is not going to have any context for it, but now it's going to give them the idea and now they're going to be terrible. (laughs) It's like, they've never done that, but now they're going to read that. So now they're going to do that. And honestly, I think this is just part of it, right? That the more that we read, just like you said, it's like a cumulative effect over time. That if we can just trust the story and the formation that's happening, we don't have to feel so bad when they're playing Narnia and they just want to be the White Witch and Edmund. And we're feeling like we've got to correct them. They can't be those, right? But you don't know what's happening in their head and heart in that moment, right? You don't know what... Um, they're processing through and why they feel, you know, scandalous one day to be Jadis, the language. <laughs> or they always tell me I have to be Jadis. And I'm hoping it's just because I'm a girl and I'm the only girl in our house. <laughs> but, you know, who knows? Oh, they no. know. And um, but all of that. And so I just think if moms can really just take a breath and just relax and that is something that's really hard to do in the early years. We're, we're asking ourselves constantly, is this really going to work? I think at the the bottom, honestly, Amanda, because I have been there asking, if I do this, if I have this these quality books and spend the time doing this, is it going to work? And yeah. we don't know. Because we, we might see them be only Edmund for weeks. And we're thinking, we have now messed them up. Because they're only 
the the bad characters and all the stories. And I would just say, man, if you can just continue on reading, knowing that the the truest story is one of, you know, in fairy tales, for it, for example, it is always good triumphing evil. Or it's not a fairy tale. And so no matter what they're acting out or embodying that day or that week or that month, you can be sure that as you continue and as they mature, they will know the story. And it is one where good triumphs evil in them and in the world that God's made. And I just think that's worth our effort. When it's hard, I think it's worth it. Well, and this is where I think maternal sympathy is important because mm-hmm. we could like something with like you're saying in that case, like if a child's like playing the bad character or something, we could make it much worse by drawing attention to it. Yes. Versus with our sympathy towards good characters, oh, towards good things over time, that's that's a pull on them towards the good. Right. Whereas if we're like making a dramatic big deal about it, it could create a lot of it's like, <laughs> oh, this is fun. What <laughs> But you kind of already started talking about fairy tales, so let's move on to those because that's obviously a very important thing in with reading stories to our kids, Grimm's fairy tales. They, I didn't realize until recently that that's more controversial just be, by virtue of the Grimm's fairy tales being having like more quote unquote violent elements, right? Like eyes being pecked out by ravens yeah. or dancing on hot, you know, hot irons until you die. Um, all the bad <laughs> characters, of course, um, but fairy tales is there anything you want to share about it before I dive in um I don't I don't think so I I am excited to hear what you're gonna say because I think we're gonna say the same things but um but I think what you just said though does touch on the man is my kid old enough to hear some of this is this too much is it over the top and then you having to then I just think it's more of us wrestling with it, right? Like, especially if we grew up on a Disney version, which I did. I'm a millennial. I'm a 90s kid, okay? That was um, what I watched all the time. And so when I started to read the actual fairy tales, they're not the same. Like, they're not even the same storylines. There were characters coming in when I was reading that I was like, where did you come from? And, you know, and so I think that part kind of trips us up and then just like you said there's a little bit more gore and we're thinking well maybe we like the Disney version better and then having to say why is that you know what what is it about this that I'm having to process and so I would love to hear your thoughts yeah no and and I'm sympathetic to that I think like I recently did hear a story of someone being like oh well like I read these stories to my child and they had nightmares and I'm like okay well like obviously if your child is having (laughs) nightmares then maybe take a break and put a pause on that like I'm not recommending you do something that would (laughs) create you know you being up at 2 a.m consoling a crying (laughs) child because you know something awful but I mean in a sense any dark image could give a child a nightmare so I think that's where like you know the image of a dragon could give your child a nightmare so I think that's where as a mother of course and father as parents you you use wisdom and you you are in tune to what things your child needs I'll just say on a personal experience level that has not been a problem for us in terms of I read the Grimm's fairy tales or Christian and Hans Christian Andersen or whatever Mm -hmm. I read all of them just straight through I leave those elements in there and 
on the one hand, kind of like what we were saying with scripture. I was going to say. Children are prepared to hear yeah. only what they're prepared. Like they only hear as much as they're able to handle. And so hmm. I, I should obviously the caveat is a normal, a typical child from right. a typical home situation. Right. If you obviously have some, like a foster child or things like that, yeah. it could be different. But I'm different. saying a normal situation where a child has not been exposed to some gross violence or trauma for in a typical situation the child is not going to hear these things and picture what you're picturing yeah. because you're picturing the adult version. Yes. They're picturing a much simpler childlike version, but what they are getting in that is still the dramatic message that evil will be destroyed. Right. And so I think that's where to back up. So let's real quick, let's okay. define right. what a fairy tale is. Cause we've mentioned them a ton throughout this episode without ever saying what they are. So this is the moment. This is the moment where we tell you what we're referring to. <laughs> So fairy tales at the at their simplest are old stories that externalize through a series of images the internal divine order of the cosmos, right? They show good versus evil. They show virtue versus vice. And so that's Sleeping Beauty, Cinderella, or Ashen Poodle, as yeah. the German version would be, right? Rumpelstiltskin. These are fairy tales that have this divine ordering so there's going to be a good guy there's going to be a good character um a lot of times like in the case of something like a sleeping beauty right you have the prince who is christ rescuing the church who has been put under a spell the spell of sin right and he comes and rescues her or you might have like the uh, the story of the master maid which is one of the ones in the blue fairy book mm. uh, by andrew lang and the master maid is this story of a man who every time he listens to the master maid, things go well for him and she rescues him. It really actually starts out almost like a, like the story of the prodigal son. He's a son mm -hmm. who leaves his father's kingdom and goes to uh, end up indenturing himself to an ogre, mm -hmm. uh, thinking the ogre is going to be this kind master. And in fact, he is trying to destroy him, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're hearing that, I think you can already hear some of the spiritual overtones in that. Mm -hmm. And so then he goes in different rooms and in the first room is a bronze pot and in the next room is a silver pot and then so you see like this value increasing as he goes in each room and in the final room is a woman she's the master maid and the master maid if you read it as an image she's an image of lady wisdom mm. and so like i said every time the man follows lady wisdom things go well. He flourishes. Mm. He finds success. He is able to escape from the ogre. But then this horrible thing happens where she warns him, don't leave me. And he says, no, I I've got to go. I've got to go do this thing, but I'll come back for you. And sure enough, when he's forgotten Lady Wisdom, he is once again enchanted by an evil witch. Mm. And then once again, Lady Wisdom has to come and deliver him through a golden apple. So these sort of stories are powerful because they're conveying a deeper insight into reality. Like you said, mm. this, this picture, you could tell your child wisdom is really valuable, right? That's like the propositional truth. <laughs> or you could tell the story of this man who has this woman who keeps giving him wisdom. And it's so obvious as the reader that he just needs to do what she says. Like it obviously goes well for him when she tells him what, to, when he follows her advice. And then when she does it, it obviously goes terrible. So why would you ever not listen to her? Like, why would you ever think you knew better than the master maid? Like she has, she has delivered you time and time again. And yet we, 
even as I say that, right, we hear ourselves in that. It's like, why do we ever doubt the wisdom of God? Why do we yeah. ever think we know better than God? Right. And so that is just one example of many of the ways that these fairy tales, these stories are full of this rich truth. And yet at the same time, what I'm not saying is that your child is going to read the master maid and on the first time be like, oh, well, it's lady wisdom, obviously. Like, yeah. you know, they're just going to read that story and be like, well, that was weird. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like a lot of the times that's the like initial takeaway of a fairy tale is, well, that was odd. Like there's just like sometimes if you don't yet know what the image is that you're reading, right. it just sounds weird. You're like, yeah. this is really weird. Like this wouldn't happen. Like he wouldn't have just w left her for no reason and thought like, like, oh, he has to go get her a carriage. That's dumb. Like what? Yeah. But when you understand, no, but this is a metaphor. Like there's a yeah. story being told here. And if once you know what that metaphor is, then it yeah. just blows your world right open to understand understand um but what I think of like with my kids is like as we're reading these stories to them we're basically like filling their heart up with this treasure chest yeah that they get to find out later how rich they are mm. right like they don't know yet how these stories are full of these deep rich gospel spiritual truths and yet they're there which is a, it's a two-edged sword because on mm -hmm. the one hand, I as a mom am getting to delight in the discovery. Like I think it took me a whole day of thinking about the Master Maid before I figured out the the key and was like, wait, it's wisdom, it's wisdom. And yeah. I was so excited, which was like extremely gratifying. Like as the mom, when you're getting to read a fairy tale and you figure out what the the key is to interpret the whole thing and then you feel all the, the, the pieces come into place, mm. it's extremely gratifying as the mom. And yet for your child, it's still this special treasure left for them to discover later. Yeah. And so I think it's just interesting to think about from the perspective of, of as a mom that you are getting to be stimulated intellectually and spiritually by these things as you're doing it with your child. And yet it's still valuable even now for your child mm. because they are getting that very basic moral framework of good versus evil. Um, and so, but they just understand it in that very limited level. And as time goes on, they will get to deepen their understanding, which is really cool. Hmm. I love the that. next thing. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I love that. I heard Angelina Stanford, which we will link to these episodes below of her talking about this because she is the queen of all of these things, fairy tales, but that she said that Lewis and Tolkien are the next generation of carrying on the work of fairy tales. I had never thought about that, that they were so inspired by Grimm's and these old historic tales that if, when you really then think of their work, you can just see it everywhere. And I just love that, that the next generation, um, you know, picked it up and they're excellent writers and we don't have many like them today. Yeah. You know, uh, C.S. Lewis really attributed a lot of his inspiration to George MacDonald mm -hmm. and George MacDonald has, let me look at my pile. I say, you know, a lot about, <laughs> um, he has a book called the, the gifts of the child Christ, which is fairy tales and stories for the childlike. And so I would add him to that list of like, if you are looking for more fairy tales written by Christians, so in that sense, maybe you trust it more, um, then that's another great one. Actually, can you share about Grimm's real quick? Because I think most people don't know who the Grimm's brothers were and why they did what they did. So the Grimm brothers were devout Christians who started to see 
these fairy tales and just like you said, was like the master made to you. And they were starting to see these themes of Christ and his church and just gospel realities. And so they like really went on a excursion, I would just say, an adventure to see where did they come from. And the thing about fairy tales that is so mysterious is that no one can track down how old they are and where they originated. They just seem to have always existed. So no matter what culture, region, place, people you go, even to this day, they will have the same fairy tale, but in their culture. So there will be a Korean Cinderella, an Asian Sleeping Beauty, everywhere, that there's not a culture that doesn't have it. And so Mm -hmm. what they began to realize is that these truths were actually, and I might get the wording wrong, so correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, but essentially that at the, at the beginning that fairy tales tell the truest story and that it is the Christian imagination that was once understood, but is now lost. And so what we see now in fairy tales that we read is the fragments and the pictures of those. That absolutely blew my mind. I mean, I started crying on the spot, paused it, and went and told my husband. Because as again, I'm at 32, reading these fairy tales, starting to see these themes, getting very emotional reading them to my son, and thinking, what is happening? Why is this? And hearing that reality that they are telling the story that's truer than true. It's what Stradford Caldecott said, right? That we are enchanted by story so that we get a deeper view of reality. That was happening for me in real time. And just linking that is, to me, there's just, there's no, there's no reason not to read them, but even more so, more encouragement too. Because when you realize what's really happening And what story they're telling as a Christian, there's just not a better foundation to give. I mean, it just goes back to the seed. You are just cultivating the soul that just like you said, Amanda, that when they, it clicks for them. And it's going to be different for all of our children that they will just have just a tool belt of resources to be able to draw from for the rest of their life. Um, And that's just a gift as a mom to be able to, to play a part, you know, to partner with the Holy Spirit in that work. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, That's so beautiful. Well, let's go on to the next one. So the next one is myth. So briefly, myth is in the most strict sense, it's the time before men. Mm. Um, So it's origin stories. But So that would be, you could call that, Northrop Fry refers to that as pure myth. If it's a story like a creation type origin story, then it's a pure myth. But then Northrop Fry has what he calls secondary myth. And that's the myths that we're all probably more familiar with or epics, right? Which is the stories of great men and gods interacting. Hmm. Um, So uh, that would be Virgil, Odysseus, the Iliad, things like that. Um, David Hicks in Norms and Nobility says this. He says, myths inspire men to perform great and selfless deeds by assuring and warning them that their actions are not individual but symbolic. The student of myths is likewise transformed by participating in them through his imagination. The myth involves and commits him, civilizes him, stamps him. Its transcendent nature paradoxically grounds the student in time while animating his eternal soul. 
you know, the myths, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, the mythos really is this desire in humanity to answer questions that now from this perspective, where we're at now in time, we can look back and see how these questions were all answered in Christ. Mm-hmm. And so the 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 mythologies that we, that have made it to us today that have been preserved to this day have been pre- preserved, we have to remember, by the church. The right. church is the one who has preserved all these writings for two, for the past 2,000 years. Yeah. So, you know, we're, it's really a special thing in that sense that mm. at this place in time, we don't have to wonder like, oh, like, is there any redemptive quality in this thing? Yeah. Because the church is the, the guardian that has mm. preserved it for all this time. And so there's really a sense of trust we can have as parents reading these stories to our children that, again, these are gold mines for us to dig and to come to understand more and more of how humanity has been longing to have the answers to these questions from the beginning. And all of them have been answered in Christ. And so um, books like Tales of Troy and Greece or A Wonder Book for Girls and Boys or Tanglewood Tales, right? Mm. These are opportunities to expose our children to myths but in a version that is child appropriate and is right. kind of just familiarizing them with these stories mm-hmm. so that when the time comes for them to read the originals, they'll have some pegs that yeah. hopefully might increase their understanding. Yeah. The other one is the golden treasury of myths and legends. That is a good one. Um, Delair, the Delayers have the book of Norse myths. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of different ones there, but um, all of them with the same goal of showing our children these stories from all these different places and times and yet seeing how ultimately we're working our way up to show them how these stories are communicating the longing humanity had for our lord um that kind of then goes into legends so legends the difference between legends and a myth would be legends generally are about people who really existed Mm -hmm. right so saint george saint nicholas there are now legends around them that are often very fantastical and yet these are real people who lived in time and in history right right so that's what's unique about a legend. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I encountered a quote when I was reading Misty of Chincoteague with my daughter uh, last year. And I just had to sh- share it because it's just delightful and basically gets to the heart of why legends are so great. Uh, it's the grandfather speaking. He says, facts are fine for as they go, but they're like water bugs skittering atop the water. Legends now, they go deep down and bring up the heart of a story. Mm. That's that's something that only recently, honestly, I think I've really been beginning to grasp that mm-hmm. the value of legends is not in this rational, oh, is this true? Like, did this really happen? Right. You know, like, uh, but the better question is, what is the church? What is God's people trying to teach me through this story? Mm-hmm. What is the lesson here for me to receive? And so whether it's, you know, the story of St. George fighting a dragon, whether or not he literally fought a, dra- a dragon is really irrelevant. The mm-hmm. point is St. George represents the triumph of good over evil. Yeah. And now maybe he did actually fight a dragon. I don't know. <laughs> um, but whether or not he did, again, isn't the point. And so just keeping that in mind, um, actually, I just started reading The Nutcracker by Alexander Dumas, his version. And uh, he there's an interesting part in the story because it's setting up the whole story that we all know. And he makes a point about how the children weren't allowed to go in the living room because they were told at that time that guardian angels brought their presence. So it seems like this is the 1700s. So it seems like maybe there wasn't 
as much about Saint Nicholas or Santa Claus mm-hmm. at that point, but they're being told, oh, it's it's angels who bring you presents. And he says this, he said, the children are told that it is their guardian angel who sends them all those pretty toys. This is a very innocent deception after all, and perhaps it can scarcely be called a deception because all the good things in this world are sent to us by heaven. <laughs> so once again, you kind of see this idea of, okay, so you have something that objectively, okay, were their gifts literally purchased by a guardian? And, you know, like, of course, mm-hmm. you're, you're reducing it to absurdity if you're trying to rationalize the legend. Right. But if you just take the heart of what's being communicated, these are gifts from heaven, right? Mm-hmm. God, in that sense, it's actually truer than true because- mm-hmm all that we received is a gift of God. Yeah. And so I think that's just one little example that I just encountered yesterday yeah. that made me think, oh, like I'm just valuing legends more and more as I realize there's something here that again goes so far beyond just the facts of the case, right? Like yeah. this is about deeper insights into reality once again, as you said. And so just receiving those as a gift and, yeah. and receiving the lesson and the message in those stories, I think is a very powerful thing. That's good. Lastly, for the day, because we are way over our time. (laughs) Fables. Fables, like Aesop's fables, right? Little stories have animals, and yet they're going to communicate some moral, right? Or maybe it's like a picture from nature, like the oak and the reeds. Charlotte Mason said in Home Education, fables, according to our author, should be the basis of moral instruction at the second stage, probably when children emerge from the nursery. She also said in Philosophy of Education, Aesop's fables are used with great success and are rendered after being once heard with brevity and point and children readily appropriate the moral. So I actually wanted to ask you real quick, Brooke, because there's actually kind of a hot debate going on in the classical world about do you read the moral? Do you not read the moral? So are you teen read the moral or teen don't read the moral? Um, I are you saying like what is at the bottom that is usually there? Man, sometimes maybe, but to be honest, I don't explain. So I don't know if that is like sometimes I will read it, but I'm not like intentionally not reading it. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not like Xing it out, Um, but I do not explain it. So I don't know if that is it, but I really do believe that if you just let it fall, it's what you said, they will they will take what they understand at the time. And it's funny because I will see my son's you know, laugh at some of them and say, wait, that wouldn't happen. No, that can't happen. And you just see them take it and process it and work it out. And so, um, but I'm also maybe team don't explain a, like a lot of things either. <laughs> or, well, you know, I wonder you. though, um, I wonder with you because you know, like you're a talker, right? Like yeah. you love to talk, you're a conversationalist. Yep. So I think that's where as moms, we just have to be aware of our own ditches. Yes. Like, right. you know, like you're always reminding yourself not to talk because you know your yes. disposition is to talk a lot. Whereas yes. certain moms might actually need the opposite right. exhortation. Right? If they're just never saying anything, it's 100%. like, well, you do have to explain the world at some point. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah but, that's a good point because I think th- that awareness piece, and like I said, I have a post-it note at times that will remind me to not make it, you know, do, to not talk. Because I can just get into a very teachy and then, you know, their eyes become glassy and they're just like checked out um, because I find them so exciting. And so I think that maybe dis- disposition does have something to do with it. Like you as the teacher having to know, like, are you one that really is going to talk, talk, talk? Or are you going to be one that's going to, you know, 
Well, I think there's an opportunity to use those images, not in a preachy way, like you're saying, not moralizing. There's a difference yes. in my mind between sit, reading from the book. Here's the moral mm-hmm. that, that the author Asep is giving us yeah. versus moralizing, which is then preaching on it. Like, yeah. well, guys, don't you hear what this said about being yes. greedy? Like, yeah, um, but there is, I think, a more subtle way in which just later in conversation, we can use those images as pegs for a discussion, whether, you know, as we're struggling or even something we're sharing about our own life. Like I talk to my kids all the time about the oak and the reed. And I'm like, yeah, like I am tended, I have a tendency to be the proud oak resisting and saying, this is how it's going to be. And yet I want to be more like the reed. I want to be humble. I want to be low. I want to be submissive to the Holy spirit who scripture compares to the wind. Right. And so like, I have like, in that sense, exegeted that fable to my children just as I was sharing my own journey and my own spiritual walk but there was no eyes glazed over because they were interested and we were having a very real conversation and you know it was a heart to heart it was natural it was not formal in any way and so I think that's where there's just discernment of the right timing of when to say things and when not to say things and Certainly if our kids are glazed over, don't say anything. And I would just like say that you're going to know that time because they're most likely going to ask, right? Like there's going to be a curiosity where they have had time, whether it's right after the reading or time later, where they're going to ask for an explanation or what did that mean? And is this like they're going to connect it to something else? And at that point, I think what you just explained, that happens all the time in our house. So if that is considered moralizing or whatever that camp would be, then I would do it. But like you, I don't see it like that. I I see that as part of them taking on the idea and working it, like you say, like contemplating it where they're trying to connect it and see. And it's amazing to me that it will be oftentimes like days later, like I have maybe forgotten. And so I'll have to ask, remind me again, what part exactly? Where did we read it? What is, you know, because they're just pulling from so many things and they're starting to connect things in ways that, you know, my brain is not as fresh as theirs and readily to make the connections. But, but yeah, I, I don't even know if I knew there was a camp of not reading the moral at the bottom or not. So that, there you go. That tells you something about me. But, um, but yeah, I, I think that um, part of having narration um, is just such a help to that too, because you're getting a window into where they are without being, you know, standing in judgment over it, but you're able just to see a glimpse at to where they are or what they didn't understand and, you as a mom, you're able to take that and say, okay, well, we need, like you said, I mean, I realized with Tales of Troy and Greece that my son in particular needs more fairy tales and fables to prepare them because that was a big jump for him. And I just did not do a good job at reading myths, legends, and all of that before. So he's had a harder time even understanding the names. I mean, I've had to Google how to pronounce these names. (laughs) You know, and so that's think they're alone in that. Oh my goodness. And so I think with that, you just, you then realize, okay, I need to do a better job. Just kind of like you said, where you then say, okay, we need more of this. And so I go and find more things to give him, you know, things to draw from, to continue to whet that ap- appetite that is there, but it's just so new. And so I think that too is just as a mom, you get, you just get a really, um exciting role 
when you really see this as, man, what a gift it is to see them and hear them and see how formation is happening on the inside, which isn't always seen, right? And that can scare us at times. But I think when you, again, think long-term, right, you have to take the long view and you know all the things that we have already shared. I mean, if I didn't think anything about stories and fairy tales, honestly, just from listening to you and the things you have shared in this episode, I would be very encouraged to say, I'm going to go get a book and I'm going to sit down and read it because it's just inspiring to think about the potential and what we know is true of all of these stories that this can happen as we commit to doing it, you know, over the long haul. And that these stories are just the foundation for every other story to come, right? So if we want the 18-year-old or 16-year-old, whenever they start to read um, the Odyssey and Iliad and all of that, that the preparing for that is Mother Goose, is Aesop's Fables, is Tales of Troy and Greece, that all of that is what is setting the tone for what is to come, you know, God willing. Yeah. Oh, no, that's so true. Uh, this is a, such a giant topic yeah. <laughs> to tackle stories for the early years. There's so many more angles we could have hit on, so many other book recommendations we could have made. I could have just probably talked for an hour just listing off all the books that, that I love I, so much and I've gotten to read with our, our kids. But um, hopefully this, like you said, has provided just inspiration and encouragement of, of somewhere to start, right? It's This is not a uh, one-stop solves all kind of situation, yeah. but hopefully it was at least some initial introductions to these different categories of books, of why they matter, how they're valuable for children, and hopefully just gave you somewhere to start. Yeah. I'm going to end with a quote from Cicero, because as we're talking about all of these things, I just want to reiterate once again that our inspiring idea for why we are discussing these things are always rooted in the philosophy that has been handed down starting with the Greeks and Romans and then handed down by the church that mm. that we're not approaching this as oh well it's valuable because we say it's valuable no these things are valuable because much wiser people than us have been saying so for many years yeah so, let me read this no mental employment is so broadening to the sympathies or so enlightening to the understanding as reading other pursuits belong not to all times all ages all conditions but this gives stimulus to our youth and diversion to our old age. This adds charm to success and offers a haven of consolation to failure. Thank you for joining us today as we sought to participate in the great conversation. You can find our show notes for today's episode, including all the quotes and book titles mentioned by heading over to the Wonder Years podcast of Stack. If you have any questions regarding today's episode, we would love to hear from you at wonderyearspodcast at gmail.com. In addition, we would so appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave us a rating and review. Finally, you can find both of us on Substack. My Substack is titled A Classical Woman and Brooke's is A Pilgrim's Way. Brooke is also on Instagram at her handle underscore Brooke Johns. Cheers, friends. Until next time.